Hello everybody, welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at NFL on Twitter and of course follow the group at UK Packers. And this is an exciting month. I'm not going to hit you with any of this crap of April Fool's. Aaron Rodgers is about to be traded to... Whatever, right? Great fun. Congrats <laughs> to all the people out there who got caught. Like, I remember being fooled before. I, th- I think... I don't know who it was. Someone close to me sent me a message before on April Fool's saying that they fell down the stairs and they broke something. It wasn't their neck, but it was what I was thinking. And I'm like, don't see the humor in it. Don't like it. Similarly, don't take Aaron away from me. So, exciting month this month. We're going to be releasing the schedule. Uh, we're going to be deciding on the packages that we're going to use to go to the States. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast and you've been a regular listener, well, then you know the deal. Um, if you're a relatively new listener, well, then let me just tell you that every single year we go stateside to see the Packers play. And every single year... Uh, when we go over, we go to Lambeau Field, and we also try to get in a you know an away game, and we've been doing some really interesting stuff, and it's been getting better year and year on year on year, um, and the the prices as well are bargain basement stuff. The LA Rams game, so you could go to Los Angeles, uh, California, and go to the Coliseum. Uh, that was a highly sought after game, as all of the Packers games are, which is the reason why we don't see them in uh, the UK for uh an away game over here in Wembley is because the packages are so expensive and that's because uh they travel so well um and uh, that LA game 950 pounds per person sharing pretty cool and there's ruminations that the schedule is going to be released on the 18th of April so we always endeavor to have the packages out on about the 19th of April right uh, so we're, we try to release them a day or two, uh, maximum five days, maybe two a week after, just to get all of our leaflets stuff together, all of our emails compiled and all the rest to bang out and to really lock down those prices. So we'll get those out to you. What I would plead with you is, is that we've never let people down before. It's always been a fantastic trip. And the number one thing that we try to do here at UK Packers is to try get a really the, the cheapest that you can get it so if you go around to try and make it up piecemeal yourself uh, that it doesn't even compare to what we have and we have had people that have went piecemeal in the past um, and have ended up sort of coming back to us then and going okay yeah fair enough you know the whole package that you offer um is cheaper than what i could have done to put it together or you might get it for 50 quid cheaper or whatever but that had that didn't happen last year there are fantastic prices now we know everybody's excited and what ended up happening last year was is that you know i don't know how many times we got contacted by people saying i went out and booked my flights can you get me tickets and the answer to that is no uh, the travel agent that we worked through they're not just a ticket vendor they need to like offer some sort of added value to it so they obviously benefit from booking the you know flights or the hotel or whatever they do on that end um you know in bulk and so what they need is they get those discounts with the people that offer and if they were to just sell tickets it probably wouldn't be worth their while um selling tickets because there's enough vendors out there that do it for crazy colossal prices so i would urge you to maybe bear with us if you're going to look to get over to green bay and we hopefully can guarantee you the cheapest price that you can get anywhere and save yourself some dosh for the pro shop instead of just shooting the gun um like we've seen people do since we start doing the trip 
uh, and run out and buy flights first and then sort of think they can get everything else after when it doesn't really work out that way. Green Bay tickets on the ticket exchange usually go for crazy prices. And we have had people come back to him, Jesus, I didn't think they were going to be like so many hundred quid. And it's like, yeah, well, that's what happens. The The main one last year was the Patriots-Packers game. So we knew an awful lot of people out there who were really anxious to go to that game. Um, and they ended up getting kind of screwballed then by buying the flights, which were cheap, but then getting screwed on the ticket cost and hotel costs. Because everything, when the schedule is announced, shoots through the roof. So bear with us. Um, so this podcast... I do a weekly one, um, and it's bi-weekly during the season. Again, regular listeners will know that. And one thing that I don't like, like, I'm not here to talk about myself, but one thing that hopefully people know about me now is that I don't BS too much, right? I don't patronize it or give you some, I don't give you a shite that you shouldn't be listening to if I don't feel that there's a reason for it. Um, And I don't want to bring you a podcast when there's nothing to talk about. And I don't want you sitting there listening and wasting your time because I am eternally grateful for how successful this podcast is. And I think that's predicated on giving you some quality content and not some just random waffle. Um, So what I'll do is I'm going to kick it. I really wanted to call this episode and I don't think I have the balls to do it by release to call it Hooker's Bog Roll Booze and Bent, right? <laughs> for a number of reasons, then you'll find out. I love doing the history stuff and the history podcasts. I don't know if it floats everybody's boat as much as it does mine, but some of the stuff I find absolutely fascinating. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to crack it off with a bit of news, and then I'm going to get into the really interesting story of the foundation of the Packers. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, George Whitney Calhoun and and Curly Lambeau have a chat on a corner. They start the team. They get money from the Indian Packing Company. They set up the team. It nearly goes bust, and that's the story. I kind of wanted to look behind it all. Now, kind of a, a pet project that I'm doing, which I really don't have ready yet, is to go into that first team in Green Bay and to go back and look through all of the players and find out who they were because there was an awful lot of Irish names in there. We've Dutchie Dwyer, uh, Sam Powers, uh, Jim Coffeen, and all these really interesting players. And the more I'm looking behind those original players, the more really interesting stuff I'm finding out. Like Jim Coffeen, for instance, was the play- first sort of play-by-play caller for the Packers. He was known as the voice of the Packers and ended up having a heart attack uh, before a broadcast and passing away. Uh, but he was the original dude and some of the other guys that I found out uh, and what they went to go on and do. And I just think the Irish-English influence is really fascinating. But I'm going to look at the other men behind it. Um, you might have heard of a crowd called the Hungry Five. And I'm going to get into some of the really interesting stuff there. Like I said, hookers, bog roll, booze and bent. And they all mean something and it all means something by the end of this podcast. To some people out there, they mean something already. But uh they're going to mean something to do with the Green Bay Packers. And it's amazing that as much as, you know, we kind of take the piss out of the boozy Irish. I don't know. Like the UK Packers, we're kind of seeing, people are like, I cannot believe you get American football over there. Why the Packers? It makes no sense. When really it was a bunch of paddies from the, from the wrong side of the tracks in Green Bay who set up the team in the first place. But before I get there, there's a, so that's the schedule release covered. Uh, probably keep your eyes peeled for about the 18th of April. Uh, we'll be releasing shortly after. Jordy Nelson retired. Now, I wanted to get a whole sort of blurb and spiel about Jordy and what he meant and his best plays and all this type of lark. Um, and I could do that, but it's probably already been done already. So I'm not going to waste your time. We all know what Jordy meant to us. And we it really is an end of an ear here. We saw like on the last podcast, Clay Matthews going, Randall Cobb signing for the Cowboys. For an awful lot of people, and this is why it's so impactful, really, 
there are the diehard fans out there who have been fans since the 80s um, and we've seen a guy who was there for the ice ball I mean you know we're talking like Lombardi style uh, Packers coverage and all the rest and, and that's fantastic but for an awful lot of listeners they're relatively new to the game so these players are kind of the players that the these are the only players that they've ever known is the dominance of Clay Matthews or you know the superstardom that he was and, and Randall Cobb and the slot and Jordy Nelson and the chemistry and the team is changing and it's rebuilding and that's why these things are so poignant TJ Lang uh, retires from the game as well that came out during the week um, and then there was the owners meeting and people caught up with the head coaches and all that and I listened to a podcast with Adam Schefter uh, with Matt LaFleur now what I will say is, is Matt LaFleur seems like a really nice dude he seems like he has all these ducks in a row he talks about how he's so much to do and every time I see him like he's first off I'm rocking the Blazers lately right and I see Matt LaFleur is a man after me on heart here with those Blazers are actually he's even got the whole pocket square right I'm loving it um so he's the best dressed but look at his eyes I mean these bloodshot eyes the guy's probably up all hours uh first time head coach all the pressure is on him but nothing that he says in interviews really strikes me as original really that he's not coming out with some sort of world beater phrase that lets me know who he is um, and all the rest I think that the jury's going to be out and I don't really care um, what he says or how he acts or how nervous people say he is in front of the mic and all this type of stuff that doesn't bother me one iota I want to see what his game strategy is like what he does behind the scenes because he'll harden up to all the rest if you remember Brian Gudekunst when he was coming out in front of the media now he'd been in front of the media before he just wasn't on our radar because he wasn't in such the you know such a high profile position now he's the GM and he's really grown into himself he's he's able to tell reporters you know shut your face I'm not answering that in a really respectful uh, but stern tone so he's got all that locked down and Matt LaFleur will get all that in time uh, who cares and he just seems like a nice guy he's a young guy um, and he's very sort of measured in the way he speaks but that's the modern game and it's also naivety and all the rest I don't really care but the number one thing that you'll notice and I'll go through it real briefly uh, on the subject of kind of history is that when you look at first time head coaches they don't have all that great of a record especially early on in the Packers so anytime you have a change over of the guard you have that risk of you know subpar performances a team in development and all the rest of because when a team changes head coach obviously something's gone awry and that's why they've changed so the likelihood that they'll pick it up and you know have a winning season um you know can be few and far between i think we need to temper our expectations now we're very lucky in green bay to not have a lot of coaches in the past our first coach uh was curly lambo now I'm also going to get into that a little bit in this history podcast. But they have him down as the first head coach. 1919 starts off at a 10-1 and record. Now, he was slapping teams around from local uh, Wisconsin. So you can't really delve into that. But he was a highly successful coach. Uh, coach from 1919 all the way up to 1949. Incredible tenure. Um, but then, let's have a look at the first-time head coaches not first time head coach as well, maybe, uh, that came in after that, their, their first year. Gene Rosani, 1950, went 3-9. See ya. Uh, Lyle Blackburn came in in 1954, 4-8. Um, Scooter McLean, worst season in Packers history, 1-10. Then good old Vince Lombardi comes in and has a winning season, his first season, in 1959 at 7-5. Um, so again, we all know the legacy of Vince Lombardi. That's not going to be... Uh, a shock there Phil Bankston takes over uh, when Lombardi moves on 
well, moves up uh, in office, then moves out to Washington. 1968, Phil Bankston, uh, six and seven. Apparently, when Lombardi became uh, the GM, when he was looking at Bankston, he'd be shouting away in his office and they had to get it soundproof because he was so annoyed. Uh, then Dan Devine or Dan Devine, depending on what part of the world you're from, four and eight when he comes in in 1971. Uh, Bart Starr, beloved quarterback, comes in. 1975 as head coach, four and ten. Forrest Gregg, Forrest Gregg didn't do too badly when he came in. 1984, he went 8-8, eight eight, but Bart Starr went 8-8 eight eight the season before. Went 8-8 eight eight again in 1985, and then 4-12 in 1986, and the writing was on the wall. Then Lindy Infante comes in, 4-12. Not great. Now, after this period, we see some more of a measured success. Now, that has an awful lot to do with what's happening in the front office and all the rest, uh, which I won't get into in this podcast. But if you look at the tenure that run there now with Brian Gutekunst and Mark Murphy... But again, there's the haters out there. Uh, you would say that we're, I would deem us under good stewardship anyway. Uh, Mike Holmgren, 1992, 9-7, 93, 9-7, 94, 9-7, 95, 11-5, and, and of course, 1996, 13-3. Uh, but again, his first season's what we're focusing on, 9-7, winning season, happy days. Ray Rhodes comes in, 8-8. We all, well, hopefully you know what happens there. If not, I can get into it on a later podcast. Mike Sherman comes in, um... Ray Rhodes only there for a year. Uh, Mike Sharma comes in 9-7. Does really well. Um, then Mike McCarthy comes in 8-8. Eight and, eight, and then 2007-13-3. And, and goes on to great success. And then Joe Philbin comes in 2-2 two two at the end of the season. No, we're not really counting people who come in midway through the season. Because uh, that happened before in Packers history. Uh, when there was... Um, if I have this right. Gene Rosani in 1953. Then Scooter McLean and... Uh, DeVore comes in, they go 0-2, which was kind of a precursor to Scooter McLean coming in four years later um, in 1958. But anyway, I digress. So, I don't know, going back in the day anyway, certainly when a first-time head coach came into the Packers, they didn't do too well till anyone... Be to be honest with you, anyone beginning with the, with the M, Mike Holmgren, Mike Sherman, Mike McCarthy, all doing well. Matt, Matt LaFleur, I mean, is he going to have a, you know, a win-full season? Um, who knows but uh, I hope you'll indulge me now and I'm gonna try delve into the origins of the Packers so the Packers organization like it's really fascinating the story and Cliff Crystal who is just a walking encyclopedia and Lee Remmel before him you know Lee Remmel actually the difference with Remmel is that he actually lived uh, that life so he was able to sort of take that on Cliff Crystal in fairness to him uh, when you get into the Green Day Press Gazette and all the rest, which is a, a historic newspaper, and I'll get into that now in a second too. When he got in, he had interest because he was covering the team, and then he started to go through microfilm uh, from back in 1919 and read those newspaper reports, uh, which is unbelievable. He read 40 to 60 years worth of microfilm every day um, for years and years and years just to get the backstory of the Packers because the Green Bay uh press gazette would cover it and i'm going to get into that now in a second too which is just fascinating stuff uh so i'm going to go back to the to early days of the Packers. so you kind of know how interesting that story is and cliff crystal certainly calls it the most you know interesting sports story outside of a couple of teams so before i do it i can't forget about the packers limerick so i'm going to hit you with uh sort of a history related packers limerick keep it clean and then i'm going to delve into some of this history here and just show you where the red light districts come in, where booze comes in, where Willard Bent comes in, 
Um, and a bit of bog roll too. Anyway, kick it off with a bit of Irish music. Here we go, my best Irish lilt. Curly Lambo had us started off right. Gene Rosani, all things told, brought us blight. Don't even mention Lyle Blackburn. McLean, what a missed turn. Vince Lombardi made his champions out of sight. Right, so title town and the beginning of the Packers. I will just say the Packers beginnings were so humble that we all look at the, you know, half a billion dollar stadium and the highlight reel catches and the Aaron Rodgers era and before him Brett Favre and we look back to the 60s and Vince Lombardi and Bart Starr and all of the glamour when really back in the day pro football was really scorned upon. Now, let me get off the bat with a bit of gossip, right? So back in the day, the, you'll hear a couple of stories and if you haven't heard of it, uh, well then, you know, put on your seatbelt here. But... The Packers went bankrupt a bunch of times, potentially bankrupt. They changed hands like three, four times in their first four years. They're owned by the Indian Packing Company first. They folded uh, pretty much before the first season that ended. They got bought over by the Acme Packing Company, uh, which took its assets. So that was the second owner. And then the Clares who owned that were convinced by Curly Lambeau to, you know, uphold the franchise, which they did. They became the third owners. And then Curly Lambeau fielded players which were college players which was not allowed they were so they were disqualified and the franchise was taken off the Packers then he secured the franchise becoming the fourth owner so it was an absolute whirlwind at the start now it wasn't as glamorous I mean the field itself there's Hagemeister Park uh, they also practiced in the facilities at the Indian Packing Company that was part of kind of the swindle uh, let's say so it, it wasn't sexy at all. I mean, they had bleachers on one side, which you had to pay, you know, a couple of shillings or whatever we call them over here to stand there. Whereas all the rest of it was just people standing around the field. It wasn't sexy at all. Now, if you think about your local town, can you imagine, you know, the Sheffield Oilers start up a little sort of small town team? If that grows into a multi-billion dollar organization down, down the road, you're, you know, you sort of look at that and go, oh my God, what a story like we do about the Packers. And just how fascinating it is that such a small town team retained the Packers. It's amazing. But if you start off with this Sheffield, whatever, I mean, are you really going to go down in the pissings of rain and stand there watching some amateurs run around? But that's exactly what happened with the Packers and they were really into it. Now, hopefully it's not going to be boring for you, um, but I'm going to actually read out the very first Green Bay Press Gazette news article announcing the formation of the Packers word for word so you will get to hear exactly what that first article was which i personally find that if you indulge me it's fascinating to read exactly what you could have read on the formation of the packers so again i think everybody knows the story but not to assume especially for the newer fans out there who don't delve into the history they just see um aaron Rodgers and the majesty of you know recent success in the franchise discounting the last number of years and um, hanging their new fans is that curly lambo was uh the son of belgium immigrants uh, from green bay he went off to notre dame or notre dame depending on how you want to say fighting irish and he played there and there was a fantastic football program there but he got tonsillitis or whatever uh came home to green bay and had to get his tonsils out they were still sore he didn't think that he was going to go back to notre dame in walks george whitney calhoun right or george calhoun i'll tell you where he gets the whitney name now so apparently they bump into each other by happenstance and and they used to be rivals by the way uh, when they used to play in high school but you know chatting away George Whitney Calhoun is the editor for the Green Bay Press Gazette and 
they talk about potentially setting up a team in Green Bay. Between the two of them and by Calhoun's advice, he says to Curly, why did you go back to the place that you're working for? Because Curly Lambeau got a job with the Indian Packing Company. Now, the rumor has it, and again, an awful lot of these come from foundation myths. If you look at Rome, you know, you've Romulus and Remus and you have the suckling from the, the she-wolf and all of this type of BS, right? It's a foundation myth. It, pretty much everything has some sort of a foundation myth. And Cliff Crystal himself tends to talk about how an awful lot of this stuff gets debunked. We had Ralph Hickok who came on talking about his book about Johnny Blood McNally and how an awful lot of those stories, even McNally himself used to tell Ralph Hickok when he was writing his book that they were all just BS or overhyped or they weren't true. Some of the stories were true, like, you know, Johnny Blood climbing down uh, the facade of the hotel and serenading the ladies with a rendition of Galway Girl because uh, he was, you know, the son of, of Irish parents. But... An awful lot of the foundation stuff that happened with the Packers is all a myth. But apparently this happened and what they said that they would do was is go to the Indian Packing Company and Curly would convince them to sort of front up the money for jerseys and let them use the practice field. Now the amount of money that they got is the equivalent nowadays of seven and a half grand, which is an awful lot of money if you ask me. Um, and I kind of have to laugh behind it all because it talks about the Indian Packing Company, you know, going bust effectively you know, halfway through the season, I'm kind of thinking, well, they could have done with that seven and a half grand that they shelled out for a bunch of uh, jerseys with, with sewed on patches, who nowadays is done by those lovely um, old ladies in Green Bay who sew on the, the numbers and all that kind of stuff, which I'd love to meet and I have to meet uh, when I go over to Lambeau. But an interesting story about Calhoun. So the Calhoun family were very well known around Green Bay. Now, Whitney Calhoun, I always thought George Whitney who we've seen an awful lot of people, especially back in the olden days, and I won't embarrass my family by talking about my father's middle names even, which were just ridiculous. I thought Whitney was potentially a first name, you know, effectively like a middle name that was, you know, like Edward or whatever. But Whitney is actually a second name. And where that comes from is pretty fascinating. So Calhoun himself, the family are known around Green Bay. Um, I think his father worked in the waterworks, but his mother was the granddaughter of Daniel Whitney, who is being credited as one of the founders of Green Bay, the town. So whereas Calhoun is sort of seen as the founder of the Packers, his great-grandfather, Daniel Whitney, was the founder of Green Bay. Uh, Daniel Whitney, originally from New Hampshire, comes up to Green Bay, founds a ton of businesses. He's a super popular, you know, kind of a, I won't call him a swindler, but some of the stuff that he did, I see in all the stuff like, oh, what he did was illegal. But he sort of, he was fantastic at rounding up people and workers and, and getting stuff going like sawmills and he'd have sort of regular convenience stores. And he owned a ton of land around Green Bay and set up his own principalities, which eventually became Green Bay. So George Whitney Calhoun, kind of royalty as such um, in Green Bay in that regard, that not only did he set up the Green Bay Packers, but also his great-grandfather set up Green Bay, which is pretty crazy. Um, so they set up the team after convincing the Packers company to buy them jerseys but the Packers from here on out as Cliff Crystal likes to say they were just perpetually in danger of going bankrupt and they nearly did and in fact the Packers had their license or franchise revoked suspended uh, you know rescinded for playing illegal players now there's a again typical me I got on to say let me start off with a bit of gossip now apparently this happened because um George Hallis owned the team in Chicago, which became the Chicago Bears. He ended up buying the franchise. They were called the Staley's before that, the Decantor Staley's. So he had a team, and apparently there was a player that played for the Packers that he really coveted, really wanted. But in order for him to uh, get that player, well, then he needed the Packers to be 
squashed. He needed them out of the league. So apparently the Packers played ineligible players, which were college players, against the Staley's. And how did the Staley's know that they were ineligible? Because their college players <laughs> recognized the college players on the Green Bay side of the ball. So what they did was is that the Chicago media weren't really arsed about pro football. And in fact, all of it, we can see that Jerry Kramer often talks about it, that up until the 60s, no one really respected pro football players. You were seen as kind of a knucklehead or a fool for playing the sport. So you can imagine back in the 20s what people thought of it. So the rumor goes that what... George Hallis did was is that he contacted the Chicago media to cover a game where Green Bay played a team from Racine and said to them they're playing college players they wrote up this sort of expose on it and then the league said oh this is shocking and just rescinded the franchise and said right see ya so then Curly Lambeau had to go down and you know beg now according to all the sources uh, Cliff Crystal included they said that you know Curly Lambeau could charm birds out of a bush uh, you know there's about 10 reasons really why this Packers franchise continued. So after this sort of madness and Curly Lambeau goes down and applies for the franchise and all the rest and ends up getting it and, and putting it under his own name and sort of scaring up the cash, there's about a million different reasons why the Packers could have went under, under but didn't. Number one was that George Wheaton Calhoun was sort of a team manager uh, as well and what he would do was he'd literally take off his hat physically and at Packers games, send his hat around the crowd and collect money. That was one way for the Packers to, to stay open. The bleacher seats, you had to pay for them. So as little money that they would get from people showing up and watching the games, um, you know, they had to pay for the bleacher seats. Um, and Lambo himself deserves an awful lot of credit uh, for, you know, he could charm the arse off anyone. And he, he did that. And he, he was able to scare up money from businesses and all of that. And as well as that, he was an insurance salesman, uh, which is which is fascinating um so like he you know his day job was selling stuff and he was able to do that but when they set up their first franchise and i don't know if this is a podcast first or a radio first or whatever let me just read out the very first green bay press gazette article announcing the formation of the packers and um, so i don't know the last time someone has seen it or read it out on the radio but this is what people would have seen on August 13th, 1919, if you'll allow me. The headline, Indian Packing Plant Squad to Represent City. Great Football 11 in City this fall. All-star team is available. Best state teams will be seen here. Second conference of Gridiron Men at Press Gazette Thursday evening. So this is the Green Bay Press Gazette. Very important in the Packers founding, which I'll go on to say after this. Now, I don't know how long this is going to take me to read. Hopefully not that long. Um, but these are the exact words printed back in 1919. The Indian Packing Corporation will be the representative semi-pro football team in Green Bay this fall. It will be the strongest aggregation of pigskin chasers that has ever been gathered in this city. The football fans of Green Bay are going to be treated to an A1 class of pigskin chasing during the next three months. According to the present plans... The season will open, open Sunday, September 14th, and the final game will be played on the Sunday following Thanksgiving Day. This gives 10 playing dates, and the strongest teams in the state will be scheduled. All the home games are to be played at Hagemeister's Park, and plans are now underway to rope off the playing field and keep it in A1 condition. Husky squad available. The Packers, 
first time it appears in print, will have a splendid squad to pick from. Included in the list of an, is a number of former college stars and some veterans who saw service in the gridiron battles overseas. A partial list of the players who were slated as candidates are the following. Lambeau, Nichols, Ordwire, Dutch Dwyer, McLean, Gallagher, N. Abrams, Cezal, Emsall, Martell, Prager, Ousterman, Ladro, Cohen, Sauber, Rule, Flatley, Getzloff, Lurkin, Glick, Riley, Powers, Lambeau, Warwick, Muldoon, Duncan, Collard, Kaiser, Wilson, Jergo, Hawley, Wheeler, Dufresne, Cower, Morgan, House, Muldoon and McKenna. Now I'm going to stall here. As you can see, even in the print, I mean, there's an awful lot of duping there of names. Uh, but anyway, the final meeting of the Indians was held on Monday evening in the Press Gazette editorial rooms and another important conference is scheduled for Thursday. It is important that all of the above mentioned players be in attendance. Uniforms for 18. Complete uniforms for 18 or 20 men will be secured and a full squad will be kept intact the playing season. Practice will be held three times every week and the men reporting regularly for the workouts will be given the first chance in the games. Last year, the City team went through a successful season without losing a game, although the Marinette men and me 11 played the Bays to a tie in the closing argument of the season. It is the plan of the management to keep the game on the same high plane as it was last year. Rowdy tactics on the playing field will be barred and there will be plenty of police protection to handle the crowds. Negotiations are underway for games with the best teams in the state. Appleton, Oshkosh, Menominee, Marinette and other squads will be seen here during the first half of the season. And by that time, if the attendance warrants, contests will be booked with Milwaukee, lacrosse and madison now that's the end of the article a bit of a mouthful and i don't know how many people forward past that but i just find that mind-blowing that they were the words that were in print that referred to the packers first and you can see by it i mean it refers to you know football teams that were around the state but that was the founding of the packers and they met in the green bay press gazette uh hq to discuss it which is important for the survival of the packers and it's sort of intertwined but where you know the packers go on which leads me to kind of the fourth reason that the packers set afloat which was a group of businessmen called the hungry five and they were absolutely pivotal they were involved in incorporating the team and they sold shares in the stock sale and they, they constantly secured revenue for the team they were called the hungry five because they were always having their hands out begging for something like they were hungry and um, which is pretty fascinating so the five members were curly lambo he was the only one of the hungry five even though they you can see the amount of time that these lads put into it and securing financing for the team and putting up their own cash he was the only one who drew down a salary and he didn't do that at the start he started to draw down a salary after that and then eventually went on to become they call him sort of hollywood lambo uh, he ended up marrying sort of miss california's and all the rest but on the early days he was just selling insurance and you know this was a hobby of his the other members were andrew turnbull uh gerald francis clifford both of those guys were attorneys or lawyers as we call them over here um dr william weber kelly who was the son of uh two irish people um i think his mother was mary kelly really interesting backstory to that guy and then lee johannes 
or Joannis, um, depending on how you pronounce it, was it was the other member of the Hungry Five. So we all know Curly Lambeau's story to a degree. You know, guy who founded the team, played for another Dame. But interestingly enough, Curly Lambeau wasn't the first coach of the Packers. Even though he's down on all the literature and all the folklore as being the number one coach, if you go back to, again, the Green Bay Press-Gazette back in 1919, one of the headlines, which is the telltale sign, is this. Footballers get stiff workout at opening practice. Indian Packers put through hard drill on the packing uh, plant gridiron. Bill Ryan to coach Green Bay's 11. Opening game on September 14th. And it has a picture in the Green Bay Press-Gazette of Big Bill Ryan. And with a game like Ryan, I can only imagine that he has some sort of Irish persuasion. But it's fantastic that... He's the guy that goes like he, he doesn't go down to history anywhere because people just assume that Curly Lambeau coached the team. And we also see this stuff about like Curly playing the Notre Dame box and all this type of stuff. And that got really outdated. But it's amazing that, you know, it was Big Bill Ryan who was actually there. And that article was released on September 4th, 1919. And it goes on to say, and I quote, the Indian packing corporation football squad held their first practice of the season last night on the new gridiron at the plant about 18 men reported and they were put through a stiff drill at the initial workout the team will practice again on friday night and every player is urged to be on the job at 6 45 the packers have secured big bill ryan to coach ryan is one of the best gridiron mentors in this part of the state he handled west high in 16 and 17 and was in charge of a service 11 last fall Ryan will also coach the Purple this season. Negotiations for an opening game on Sunday, September 14th. Uh, many of neighbouring teams are not anxious to face Green Bay so early in the season. And it goes on. But Big Bill Ryan was the guy who was coaching the team first and putting them through their paces. So although, you know, Curly Lambeau is kind of seen as the kind of the shiny face of the franchise. It's good old Big Bill who's putting them through their paces. And he's a fairly stern uh, look on his face. Looks like a tall dude with a flat cap as well. Um, definitely a paddy, like myself. So, Andrew B. Turnbull, people will know this guy. He was the first president of the Green Bay Packers. Really interesting backstory. And there's been an awful lot said about the Packers potentially playing a, you know, a preseason game in Canada. And there's some uh, discernment online about why don't they play over here. Andrew B. Turnbull, the first Packers president from 1923 to 1928, he was a Canadian. He was born in London, Ontario. So I know we want the Packers in London, but this guy was from London, Ontario instead. So, you know, look, there's plenty of Canadian fans and it's not that far to travel. Um, and he was actually the founder of the Green Bay Press-Gazette. A really interesting story. Born in Canada, moves around, then comes over and lands in Michigan. Bounces around in a couple of newspapers in Michigan before heading to Green Bay. And with two gentlemen, uh, one John Klein, uh, sounds Irish. Victor Minahan, definitely sounds Irish. He bought two newspapers which were struggling at the time. The Green Bay Free Press and the Green Bay uh, Gazette. And merged the two of them into the Green Bay Press Gazette. And that explains why the coverage from the newspaper from the inception of the team onwards was so good. Um, and it's amazing as well. Turnbull only died in 1960. So some people listening to this have been fans since the 60s and this guy was still alive. Um, well, albeit in 1960. And there's plenty of us out there whose parents would have been born in 1960 or before when the first president 
Um, and he was instrumental as well in making the team uh, a corporation. He was a massive fan of the Packers too. So he was the founder of the Green Bay Press-Gazette. George Whitney Calhoun was an editor for the Green Bay Press-Gazette. And how the team ended up becoming a corporation and not being owned by Curly Lambeau and Lambeau's family then going on to being one of these sort of guys who sits at the owners' meetings like your Jerry Jones and and you know all of the other owners around the league. Um, and Hallis, if you look at the Hallises, I mean, you know, George Hallis's, um family still owning the Bears. So if you look at the Packers, they scheduled a game against the team from Duluth. And due to torrential rainfall, the game looked like it was going to be a cancelled washout, but they'd already agreed to pay the Duluth team. So if they didn't play the game, they were toast, finished, completely gone. Uh, they would have went bankrupt. Because if you look at some of the earlier teams... Uh, that were in the league. They all went bankrupt. The Akron Pros, they went bankrupt after a year. Uh, the Buffalo All-Americans, Canton Bulldogs, Chicago Tigers, Decantour Staley stayed open, like they're still in existence as the Chicago Bears, bought over by George Hallis, um, changed their name. The Detroit Heralds, gone. Uh, the Racine Cardinals. Uh, interesting story. Racine Cardinals are still actually alive. So they were, again, a Chicago team. Um, then they called themselves the Racine Normals because they played in Norm Normal Park um, in Chicago. And then they disbanded and moved to St. Louis, where the St. Louis Cardinals till 1960, and then moved to Arizona in 1988 and became the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, the Rock Island Independents as well were another team. They all folded. So all of these teams were folding. And this was Green Bay's turn to fold, really, is that they agreed to play this Duluth team. They weren't going to be able to pay them. So, again, where did they hole up to try to decide what to do? Calhoun, Lambeau, and a couple of other people um, involved went to the Green Bay Press-Gazette, into their HQ, to come up with some type of decision to see what could be done if they couldn't play the game and if they would fold or not. Andrew Turnbull, who was one of, became one of the Hungry Five, ended up coming into his Green Bay Press-Gazette, which he owned, and saw the lad sitting there, got dragged into the meeting and suggested that he'd go around, do a whip round, um, and get the business of Green Bay to front up the cash to get Curly Lambeau out of his two and a half grand of debt and do a stock sale to incorporate the Green Bay Packers. And they then became a corporation in 1923 when they had a stock sale, uh, which was quite incredible. So they raised five grand by selling a thousand shares for five quid each. And I think there's only about three of those in existence today. And you pay well over 20, 25 grand for one of those, um, you know, share certs nowadays because there's so little left. So they dug Curly Lambeau out of his debt of two and a half grand um, and also held this sort of, you know, shareholders meeting or whatever and sold shares to start the company. So that's Turnbull's story. Gerald Francis Clifford, and this is where Mr... Mr. Bent comes into the whole thing. Willard J. Bent. So Francis Clifford was an attorney in Green Bay, one of the Hungry Five, went on to serve on the executive committee for nearly 20 years um, of the Packers. And he was the guy, he was the attorney who represented the Packers when a lawsuit was brought against the Packers in 1931. So the Packers were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers and they were at uh, City Stadium and there was about 7,000 fans in attendance on the bleachers and the game was going well the fans jumped up and started celebrating but the way the bleachers were constructed they would move and shake 
when there was a lot of commotion. So you can imagine if the whole audience, the, all of the fans stood up and start wailing. Uh, well, then what had happened is that the sort of the bleachers would move a bit. And there's an off, there's a great article on Vice um, about the ins and outs of the case. And that's just where I'm getting this um, information from. Um, as well as the memory of the fantastic trolley tour that we were given around Green Bay, where you can see the, you know, where this case was brought and, and what happened to the Packers and all the rest. So Willard J. Ben stood up and when he did so, when he went to sit back down on the bleacher, it effectively wasn't there anymore because it had shifted. And he fell eight feet and broke, uh, cracked two of his vertebrae. And he couldn't work and he decided that okay, if I'm not going to be able to work, I'm going to bring the a claim against the, the Packers and sue them, which he did. But the claim was so large that he won, which was about 100 grand in today's money. Um, it really ended up being 5,500, four and a half grand for his loss of wages, 800 quid for his medical bills and a pain and suffering charge of 200 pounds, which was five and a half grand, which is today's money, 100 grand. Bankrupted the insurance company that the Packers were insured by. And you have to bear in mind, this is in the height of the Great Depression as well. The insurance company went bankrupt, which means that the Packers had to foot the bill and they, in a, in effect, went into receivership. So, and this is where the bog roll comes into it, is that the Packers were famous for their, you know, forestry, uh, paper production, and some of that was toilet roll. And the comp, the... The state was and the town were doing so well in that 10-year period, even through the Great Depression, uh, that they could do a whip round again and do a second stock offering in 1935 to raise the money in a drive that was known as Save the Packers, and they raised more than 15 grand, um, which again, the, you know, it, they had a, a debt of 10 grand, which forced it into receivership, and 5,500 of that being the payment to Willard J. Ben, so they got to pay him off, sort out all their bills, um, and move on. So that's the other time that the Packers survived early on. Now, there's another one, there's there's two more of the Hungry Five that we haven't discussed. One of them was Dr. William Weber Kelly, and the other guy is Lee, jo Lee Johannes. So Lee Johannes uh, was from a wealthy family, a grocery business. I'm going to leave Mr. Kelly to last because there's some really interesting stuff that comes out about him. Lee Johannes was from a wealthy grocery business in the town. And when these whip rounds were going on, he was one of the guys who sort of stepped in and helped out and donated money and very sort of savvy business mind. This is a guy, he, he was Packers president for 17 years, led them through the Great Depression, um, led them through that second stock sale to get them out of that. Um, and he was seen as sort of, you know, pivotal. He was the longest serving Packers president for a long time. Um, and pivotal for sort of pulling them out of the mire. Now, Dr. William Weber Kelly. This guy, like what a backstory. He served as um, president for a year, but he was the team physician. Now, him and Curly Lambeau fell out. And there's a very uh, harsh phrase that he says about Curly Lambeau, which I'll get on to in a second. But um, really interesting background. Born in Jamaica to Irish parents. He went to school in England, in Leicestershire and Nottingham, before going to college in Belgium. Then he moved to Canada to study in the college that is now, or the university that is now known as McGill University, which is super famous now. Still an awful lot of Irish people, like famous celebrities and Taoiseachs and all the rest, go over and speak there. Then he came back to Europe to practice medicine in Vienna before he moved to the States. 
and he was one of the businessmen who cancelled Curly's debt of two and a half grand and and did the whip round and donated his money and his time and he was the team physician and he was a pretty prominent uh, medical presence in the hospitals like St. Vincent's and the Bell and Health facility in Green Bay and he owned the practice there uh, with another gentleman as well so I mean this guy was you know way up there in the medical community in Green Bay now he ended up having a falling out with uh, Curly Lambo, which is kind of seen as part of Curly Lambo's demise further on which I'm not really going to get into in too much detail because this is kind of about the founding of the Packers um, but he was ousted as team physician and as a member of the board along with Calhoun which both of them ended up really resenting um, Curly Lambo. and this is according to a fantastic uh, piece that I found about from Cliff Crystal where he's talking about the sort of foundation of the Packers which goes on to say what I'm about to say and this is where I'm going to get into the red light districts and prohibition is that Kelly said that he wanted to stay alive longer than Lambo so that he could wee on his grave. I mean, talk about ill feeling. Again, these guys are attorneys, doctors, um, you know, sort of seen as a respectable members of community, but he truly hated Lambo by the end of it all. And we've seen that kind of happen to Lambo that he went Hollywood um, at the end of it all. So, where does and i said i was sort of wanting to name this hooker's bog roll booze and bent so we've talked about willard j bent we've talked about the bog roll we haven't talked about the oldest profession in the world and booze and let me get into it now so green bay really had no right to stay open they didn't have a better draw than an awful lot of those teams that i mentioned earlier like the cleveland tigers and the dayton triangles and the detroit heralds and all these teams but one thing that was going on around this time was prohibition. So there was this temperance movement in the States, um, you know, led by the anti-saloon movement, the AS, the anti-saloon league, I think it was called the ASL. So they were leading this thing. It was kind of driven by religious fundamentalism. And I'm getting very deep now at this uh, and all the rest. So they were sort of against alcohol. They saw it as a scourge. I can't sort of say that it probably didn't have something to do with the influx of Irish and, and German influence where an awful lot of their society was based around you know alcohol and and october fests and bratfurst and the paddies coming over and starting starting stuff and running amok so again there was sort of a tide that was seen as this sort of anti-saloon movement so they got people it was kind of it was a real racket they were super powerful they ended up getting people in power and they ended up passing the laws to make it illegal to sell and distribute alcohol but it wasn't illegal to drink alcohol and i don't want to get into the ins and outs of all of the legislature but basically alcohol was banned prohibition no more booze however green bay didn't adhere to this i mean with the amount of patties there with the amount of germans there belgians uh scandinavian i mean the side was sort of a melting pot of people but people who really liked their booze now, in Chicago, you see the rise of... Now, they call him, like, Moran. His name's Moran. The Moran gangs and Al Capone and all the rest happening in Chicago and the mafia move in. Apparently, and this is according to a fantastic interview from Cliff Crystal, is that that didn't really happen in Green Bay and solely because they didn't... They just didn't uphold Prohibition. That was pretty hard to police because they had Prohibition agents um, and they were easily swayed. There wasn't a lot of them and they were easily paid off. But when it came to Green Bay... They just didn't give a toss. And in fact, the people that owned the taverns and the speakeasies and the place that sold alcohol were actually the sheriffs in Green Bay. So not only if you went there, you couldn't muscle in on the racket and start selling sort of moonshine 
is that when you went into one of these places that sold alcohol, the guy giving it to you was the sheriff of the town, you know? So that that's pretty incredible. So not only did teams like playing Green Bay because they could go up and... The, the, the phrase is they used to go a week early and stay a week late and most of them not even seen the games at all. So they'd go in and have a great time. But also the owners loved going to Green Bay because of that reason. They'd go up, they'd have a boozy good time. There was a, a really famous red light district in Green Bay. Um, so they go up and enjoy themselves or do whatever they're doing, get into all types of debauchery, the, you know, drink as much as they wanted, foolproof, uh, you know, high level, high percentage alcohol and get on the train and go back home. And in fact, one of the owners meetings was actually in Green Bay for that exact reason. So the Roonies and the Maras and all the rest, of course, they love going to Green Bay and their fans absolutely loved it as well. There was tales about fans going up with the team and the, the stadium when they played the game is basically empty because they're having such a good time. So the savior of the Packers comes down to red lights, districts and booze, a bunch of patties, some Germans in there too, a real melting pot of other nationalities and people really just having a good time. And I can contest that the place is still a fantastic place to go. The people are so welcoming. Um, and it's just a great place to go. Have a few beers and all the rest. So when the schedule is released around the 18th of April, we'll be putting the packages together. Make sure that you sign up to become a member. We're going to lash out the, the usual member's email with all of the flyers, with all of the packages and all the rest onto it. And I hope we've made a nice tidy segue into it all. But that's the founding story of the Packers. All of the stuff that went in behind it between... You know, being bailed out by businesses between going bankrupt by fans falling eight feet, cracking vertebrae by the Hungry Five digging us out by prohibition not applying to Green Bay. I mean, come on, it's just a fantastic story. And they were in perpetual danger until the 1950s, 60s when we start selling out games. And then, of course, all the way to Bob Harlan setting up the conference centers in Lambeau Field and all the rest it's just a pretty fascinating story so look i hope you enjoyed the story of the green bay beginnings and i've given you some value and something good to listen to of a monday tuesday and for the rest of the week and look if you like it uh make sure you follow the group at uk packers follow us on instagram at uk packers and if you want to give me any feedback uh shoot me a couple of dms a couple of messages i'm, I'm always open to have a chat i'm at stevie the nfl on twitter and of course, if you want to support the group, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash UK Packers. If you get onto that $5 a month here after six months, we'll send you a t-shirt of your choice. Um, and that's with free postage as well. So if we effectively give you all your money back after six months. And if you choose to keep donating after that point, then we truly thank you. But it's been an enjoyable one for me. Um, hopefully it has been for you too. And until next week, I'll talk to you then.